Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, April 4th, 2023, the 805th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And so let's get started on arraignment day. Donald Trump is in New York facing arraignment the first time in history that an American president or former president has ever been indicted in a criminal proceeding. The seal is broken. They have gone forward with it. Donald Trump's court proceedings are supposed to be around 2.15 Eastern this afternoon. 
if new information comes out, I will try to update later on in the podcast, but that's still a couple of hours away right now. So let's start with this highlighted yesterday by DC Drano, but the speech is actually from November after the midterms. This is the fake president, Joe Biden. We just have to demonstrate that he will not take power um, by uh, if we uh, if he does run, uh, making sure he uh, under legitimate efforts of uh, our constitution does not become the next president again. And to that, there's not much more you can say than Okay, Kami, good luck. I'm sure there's no way this is going to come back around to bite you while you're actually under investigations for real crimes, not made up crimes, not novel legal theories based on misdemeanors whose statutes of limitations have expired that you combine together and then theorize are part of a campaign finance problem, even though the FEC already said they weren't real crimes. So it's all out there now. Now, we've talked a bunch about those aspects of this case that make it quite obvious there's nothing legitimate here. This morning, Lou Dobbs hosted a man named Bradley Smith, who is a professor at Capital University Law and in the Institute for Free Speech. He is also the former FEC commissioner, the Federal Election Commission commissioner. And here he is with a very smooth explanation of exactly what it is we're looking at. So what are campaign expenditures? They're objective things. There are things that you would do only if you're running a campaign. So, for example, I, I pay rent on a campaign headquarters. A person doesn't do that if they're not running for office. You hire a campaign manager. A person doesn't do that if they're not running for office. You run ads saying vote for Brad Smith for Congress, right? You don't do that if you're not running for Congress, right? But other things that you might do to enhance your election are found both by, I think, the statute, by FEC regulation, and past court decisions not to be campaign contributions. So, for example... I want to uh, look really good in the debate. So I go out and I buy a $6,000 suit. Now, you know, I would never otherwise buy a $6,000 suit. So I'm buying this really nice, beautiful suit, custom tailored and all, just for the purpose of helping my campaign chances. Nonetheless, it's not considered a campaign expenditure because people buy clothes all the time. That's what you do. You know, you, you have to buy clothes. Uh, similarly, if I decide to have my teeth whitened so I look better on the campaign trail, that's not a campaign expenditure. Or to start to bring this closer to the Trump situation, you know, business people, as you know, often have lawsuits filed against them and against their companies, and some are meritorious and some are not. So let's say somebody who's a business person decides I'm going to run for office and he goes to his corporate legal counsel and he says, look, I know these lawsuits are hanging out there against my our business company. I think these are, are bogus lawsuits. I think they're, you know, a bunch of nonsense. But I don't want them out there. I don't want the press attacking me for them. So I want you to settle those. Right now, think about that. The only reason they're paying the settlement, which they have no legal obligation to pay, is because they want to, you know, they have the purpose of influencing the election subjectively. But objectively, under the statute, that's not a campaign expenditure. You can't use campaign funds to settle your personal debts or your corporate law debts just because doing so might help your campaign. So that's the problem, uh, or at least one problem, that the prosecutor, that the DA Bragg has in this case, uh, that, that he's, he's hinged all this on this idea that if it's for the purpose of influencing an election, then it's a violation of federal law. But that's, that's really not right. That 
purpose clause, again, doesn't go to his subjective view. It goes to an objective standard of whether or not this is a, 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 a campaign expenditure. And just to add a touch of icing on the cake, the FEC in its regulations has made very clear that the fact that one purpose of an expenditure is to uh, help a campaign or to influence a campaign uh, is not enough. It's not enough if it's primarily to, for the purpose of influencing the campaign. It has to be an expenditure that exists only because one is campaigning. So, you know, one can take what they want about that, about, you know, uh, the former president's you know, personal behavior, whether they believe Stormy Daniels or not, all these kinds of things. But it doesn't really matter. In the end, it's not a campaign expenditure. And the whole case, in my view, falls apart. So as we've heard, not just from people on the right and from Trump supporters, but outlets like The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, The New York Times, there's not much to this case. It rests on a novel legal theory with charges that prosecutors at various levels have declined to pursue. But unfortunately, none of that means that the legal system in New York is actually going to deliver justice on these grounds. Maybe they will try and convict Trump and we'll see appeals. We'll see the process go all the way. We'll see whatever we need to see, because eventually when all of this does turn back around, the precedent needs to be set by Donald Trump in order to properly prosecute elements of the regime, including former presidents who have been largely untouchable for their years and years of political corruption and criminality in office. So last night, the charges, the indictment apparently was leaked to Michael Isikoff of Yahoo News, the guy who was responsible for distributing and reporting on the Steele dossier back in 2016. And of course, the Steele dossier was compiled by British intelligence agent Christopher Steele, hired by Fusion GPS, facilitated by Perkins Coie and Mark Elias, and ultimately sponsored by Hillary Clinton and the DNC with the direct sign-off of Hillary Clinton, according to her own campaign manager, Robbie Mook, in testimony last year during John Durham's trial of Michael Sussman. So here is Michael Isikoff last night in Yahoo News. Exclusive. Trump to be charged Tuesday with 34 felony counts, but spared handcuffs and mugshot. Donald Trump will be placed under arrest on Tuesday and informed that he has been charged with 34 felony counts for falsification of business records, according to a source who has been briefed on the procedures for the arraignment of the former president. A New York City police arrest report summarizing the charges against Trump will then be prepared and entered into the court system before he is led into a courtroom to be formally arraigned on the charges, none of which are misdemeanors. But the source said Trump will not be put in handcuffs, placed in a jail cell or subjected to a mugshot typical procedures, even for white collar defendants until a judge has weighed in on pretrial conditions. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's office, which has been consulting with the Secret Service and New York City court officials, concluded there was no reason to subject the former president to handcuffs or a mugshot. The stated reason for handcuffing defendants is they might be a flight risk or a threat to the district attorney or court personnel, neither of which was judged to be relevant to the handling of a former president protected at all times by a phalanx of Secret Service agents. 
The charge of falsification of business records can be prosecuted in New York state as a misdemeanor. But Bragg's office bumped up all the charges to class E felonies, the lowest level of felonies in the New York state penal code on the grounds that the conduct was intended to conceal another underlying crime, according to the source. Under the New York State Penal Code, a conviction for the Class E felony of falsifying business records can result in a prison term of up to four years. But as a practical matter, that seems extremely unlikely. No one gets jail time for that as a first offender, said a New York law enforcement official. The evidence for the underlying crime that escalated Trump's alleged misdemeanors to felonies is still not clear and won't be until the indictment is unsealed on Tuesday but it is believed to relate to the payment of $130,000 in hush money to porn star Stormy Daniels during the closing weeks of the 2016 election to conceal an extramarital encounter with Trump. And again, that extramarital encounter with Trump is denied by Trump, denied by Stormy Daniels, and the payments, according to the guy who made them, Michael Cohen, were not made in conjunction with the Trump organization nor the Trump campaign. And that is from his own attorney representing him in 2018. We went over the letter a couple of weeks ago. Here it is again. The attorney, Stephen Ryan, is writing to the Federal Election Commission. He writes, Dear Mr. Jordan, I am writing on behalf of my client, Michael D. Cohen, in response to your letter dated January 30th, 2018. Specifically, this letter responds to the complaint numbered MUR 7313, which was filed with the Federal Election Commission by Common Cause and Paul S. Ryan. In a private transaction in 2016 before the U.S. presidential election, Mr. Cohen used his own personal funds to facilitate a payment of $130,000 to Miss Stephanie Clifford. Neither the Trump organization nor the Trump campaign was a party to the transaction with Ms. Clifford and neither reimbursed Mr. Cohen for the payment directly or indirectly. Contrary to the allegations in the complaint, which are entirely speculative, neither Mr. Cohen nor Essential Consultants LLC made any in-kind contributions to Donald J. Trump for President Incorporated or any other presidential campaign committee. Mr. Cohen has not been a government employee during any of the relevant time period. The payment in question does not constitute a campaign contribution or expenditure, and therefore the FEC lacks jurisdiction over this matter. The complainants have not and cannot present any evidence to the contrary. Accordingly, the complaint should be dismissed. But back to Isikoff in Yahoo. After this story was posted, a spokesman for Trump said the former president's legal team had not seen the indictment or been briefed on the details. Trump himself responded with a post on Truth Social. And Isikoff quotes part of the post in his article before the article concludes. These are Trump's posts. Wow. District Attorney Bragg just illegally leaked the various points and complete information on the pathetic indictment against me. I know the reporter and so unfortunately does he. This means that he must be immediately indicted. Now, if he wants to really clean up his reputation, he will do the honorable thing and as district attorney indict himself. He will go down in judicial history and his Trump hating wife will be, I am sure, very proud of him. He went on. D.A. Bragg just illegally leaked the 33 points of indictment. There are no changes or surprises from those he leaked days ago directly out of the grand jury. No crime by Trump. What a mess. Bragg should resign now. And Trump mentions Alvin Bragg's wife. So let's talk a bit about her and then 
discuss some of the other characters that are intimately involved in this situation, in this indictment. Jamila Ponton Bragg is his wife's name. She has recently locked her Twitter account, like made it protected so that people can't follow her and can't see what her posts are. But she spent the last few weeks retweeting all sorts of anti-Trump nonsense. And there are some interesting connections in her background. Apparently, she used to be a project director for a nonprofit called Girls Inc. That supposedly helps young girls, I guess, achieve things in life through a commitment to communism, supposedly. And it turns out that according to that organization's website, they are currently working under an award from the Equality Can't Wait Challenge, which is funded by Pivotal Ventures, also known as Melinda Gates and Mackenzie Scott and Dan Jewett. That's Jeff Bezos's ex-wife and her boyfriend or husband or whatever she's doing. And also by Charles and Lynn Schusterman, who run the new venture fund, and they contribute to all sorts of organizations pushing the LGBTQ plus agenda and other various left-wing causes that involve social and environmental change. Now, I am not implying any sort of direct connection there like that she was the recipient of a payoff from these organizations. I'm just saying that she used to be involved with an organization funded by these people. It's just the connection I'm focused on. I'm not implying anything grander than that. Just want to be clear here. It's just always amusing to see how all of these various figures have all of these connections somewhere in their past that leads them to the position they're in now. It really is amazing that you can almost always check into these people and find all of the globalist philanthropist money somewhere at the top trickling down to them. It's kind of like how whenever you see an organization explicitly involved in these social justice causes, these woke causes, the environmental stuff, the LGBTQ stuff, you can always look at the World Economic Forum's list of partners and find those corporations right on there. For instance, everyone's freaking out about Bud Light and that creepy little dude who got his face on the can and then took a video of himself in the bathtub with it and everybody pretends he's a woman. People got mad at Anheuser-Busch. Kid Rock made a video. You look on the World Economic Forum partners list and Anheuser-Busch is right there. Now, just a note about that story. I don't spend time on that kind of stuff because I think it's silly and a distraction. But Adam Curry, the great podcaster, argued on Twitter yesterday that Dylan Mulvaney, the creepy little guy, actually entered a contest with Bud Light and had cans with his face on them sent to him and did all of this of his own accord. So if that's true, it really does change the tenor of the story. Not that it's all that relevant in the first place. The point is, though, you can find these examples Trace the money trail back and you always end up at the same spots. Now, Bragg's wife, of course, is largely irrelevant, but there are plenty of figures surrounding this indictment who are not irrelevant. This is from the National Pulse this morning. Raheem Kassam did a great job of putting together some of this political persecution. Evidence mounts as New York D.A. Alvin Bragg's staff leave wildly anti-Trump leftist social media and job trail. 
Evidence of the long asserted political persecution of former President Donald J. Trump is mounting as cyber sleuths and Team Trump itself begin to release information linking New York District Attorney staff to far left social media activism, as well as real world consulting work with top Democrats. The 45th president of the United States has long alleged that the charges being brought against him by the New York District Attorney's Office were politically charged rather than having serious legal grounding. Now the National Pulse can report the links between at least two senior staff involved in the case and far left activism. The news adds to the already demonstrated links between progressive billionaire George Soros and the district attorney Alvin Bragg himself. Bragg received up to a million dollars in Soros funding in the run up to his election. And news organizations last week tried to fact check that claim and ended up face planting on the entire thing because George Soros really did put that million dollars toward a group called Color of Change, which then transferred it to Alvin Bragg. All of this fully admitted to by all parties. But of course, in the fact check world, they want to claim that because the payment wasn't direct from Soros to Bragg's campaign. That means Soros wasn't involved and that Bragg is not a Soros DA. It was comically stupid. And of course, they got trounced for even suggesting it. The most hilarious was probably from Glenn Kessler of the Washington Post, who wrote new hashtag fact checker. The incendiary claim that George Soros funds Alvin Bragg funds in quotes. And so Twitter's community notes swooped in and fact checked the fact checker. They said Soros donated $1 million to the color of change pack, the largest individual donation it received in the 2022 election cycle days after it endorsed Bragg for district attorney and pledged more than a million dollars in spending to support his candidacy. And that was from CNBC. So not some right wing outlet. It's not a conspiracy theory. But that wasn't good enough for Glenn Kessler. He responded to that community notes fact check and wrote Twitter trolls who posted a community note to this tweet apparently have not read the actual fact check. Click the link and you will find that color of change did not spend a million dollars in independent expenditures on brag as people often claim. And he got another community note on that, which said. The original community note does not say that the color of change pack spent the million dollars it originally pledged. Soros donated $1 million to the pack days after it endorsed Bragg and pledged more than a million dollars in spending to support his candidacy. And color of change pack did spend more than half that money on Alvin Bragg. So to claim somehow that Soros is not attached to Bragg is ridiculous. And the claim is true. So it's certainly not incendiary. It is also not anti-Semitism, which is what everyone spent last week discussing. Other district attorneys office staff have been deleting their social media profiles in response to the reporting over their far left links. National Pulse first cites Jordan Stockdale, Alvin Bragg's chief of staff. The first major case outed by Twitter sleuth, the Wuhan clan concerns Jordan Stockdale, Alvin Bragg's own chief of staff the senior most position in the office, second only to the district attorney himself. A social media account attributed to Stockdale has a history of liking posts, calling for Donald Trump to be impeached and banned from running for office. The behavior stands out because Bragg and his team have insisted the investigation was conducted in an impartial manner. 
The now viral thread shows posts by the likes of Bernie Sanders and former Obama staffer Michael Blake crying out for Trump to be not just impeached, but barred from ever being able to run for office again. The tweets appear to have been endorsed by the account J. Michael Stock linked to Stockdale and hastily deleted. A version cached by Google strongly suggests it belonged to the Bragg staffer. The handle was also tagged numerous times as Stockdale over a period of years and is identical to the handle of an Instagram account, also now deleted, which also appears to have been his. Lauren Merchant, the daughter of the judge presiding. The daughter of the New York Supreme Court Justice Juan Merchan, the judge presiding over Donald J. Trump's indictment in New York, appears to have actually worked on Vice President Kamala Harris's presidential campaign just three years ago. Lauren Merchan was considered a 2020 campaign and elections rising star. Her party affiliation is listed as Democrat and a biography on the website reads, in addition to doing groundbreaking historical work for clients like John Tester, Kamala Harris, Adam Schiff and others, authentic campaigns is setting new industry standards through its commitment to diversity, transparent compensation, employee benefits and more. Before being taken down, Mershon's LinkedIn history revealed her work as the director of digital persuasion for Kamala Harris for the People, the now vice president's 2020 presidential campaign. News broke Tuesday of her involvement in Harris's election campaign, and Judge Juan Mershon has been described as, quote, a lifelong Democrat, a political viewpoint clearly shared with his daughter. As a result of ongoing inquiries, the Manhattan DA's office appeared to remove their Meet Our Team page from their website entirely as online investigators began pouring over their historical content. So essentially, the DA's office has realized that everyone attached to it in any way has massive political conflicts of interest in this case. People are discovering that. So they just took down all the information on their team. Luckily, it's too late. Meg Reese, chief assistant to Alvin Bragg, the host of the Big Dig Energy show on Rumble, known as L on Twitter, has begun archiving the now deleted data, including the now deleted accounts of Bragg's wife, Jamila, and staff Meg Reese, also recently exposed as being a hardline anti-Trump activist involved in the case. And shout out to L and Big Dig Energy. Her co-host on that is often Patrick Gunnels, and she is a friend of Badlands. Meg G. Reese is listed as the chief assistant to Manhattan D.A. Bragg, who also notably served as the director of the Institute for Innovation in Prosecution. And one thing that no one in the world needs is innovative prosecution. In fact, that's what we're seeing in Alvin Bragg's office right now. There's nothing to get Trump on. So he's just innovating and making things up. But the IIP is a John Jay College Research Center, which received half a million dollars from, you guessed it, Soros's Open Society Institute. The college located in Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan is known as a breeding ground for far left attorneys and actively seeks to push radical left wing interpretations of the law to suit a progressive and globalist agenda. The evidence linking the DA's office will no doubt fuel concerns among the U.S. voting public that one of their choices of political candidate for the 2024 presidential election is being again unfairly targeted using taxpayer resources. 
The Trump campaign is already calling for a change of venue for any impending trial against the former president, given the hard left tilt of Manhattan itself. Donald Trump was indicted under spurious business related charges in late March and appeared in court on April 4th, 2023, which of course is today. Yesterday, Mike Davis from the Article 3 Project was on War Room discussing another one of these figures, former Biden DOJ, former Obama White House attorney Matt Colangelo. Yeah, so the prior Manhattan DA at uh, um, Alvin Bragg's urging, the U.S. attorney in Manhattan, the Federal Election Commission, and Bragg himself previously declined this bogus legal theory uh, that they're using now to indict Trump. And then you have these disgruntled, unethical Manhattan DA prosecutors run to the media. They resigned. They ran to the media and cried about this. And so then back in December, Bragg hired this very senior uh, uh, Obama and Biden administration official. His name is Matt Colangelo is, I think, how I pronounce his last name. It's C-O-L-A-N-G. E-L-O, Colangelo. And Matt Colangelo is the uh, he's he is the guy who's driving this. He is the link between the Biden Justice Department and Manhattan D.A. Alvin Bragg, the George Soros backed left wing prosecutor. And if you look at the, the media coverage, when when Bragg hired Colangelo back in December, like, for example, CNN, this is how they reported it, that CNN says a they, CNN simply reported that Colangelo was, quote, a senior official in the U.S. Justice Department and before that served as an attorney on the Trump Foundation investigation with the New York Attorney General's office. Uh, they're, they're, they're covering up his background. Um, Colangelo was a left wing, has been a left wing radical lawyer for many, many years. He was an NAACP lawyer for seven years and then uh, he went to work for the uh, uh, for the Obama uh, Justice Department and the Civil Rights Division for Tom Perez when Tom Perez was the Civil Rights Chief Tom Perez went on to be the but, Labor Secretary yeah yeah, yeah hold on hold on hold on don't don't get ahead of us that was the Holder under Holder radicalized DOJ more than ever been radicalized and Perez was one of his biggest instruments of radicalization in the Civil Rights Division was the most radical of all am I incorrect there brother Davis. You're absolutely correct, uh, Ben. And, uh, and so then Tom Perez went to be the labor secretary, and this Matt followed him over to, uh, to the Department of Labor, where he was the chief of staff before Perez went to be the DNC chair. And then uh, this, uh, this Matt went to, be, uh, went, went to work in the Obama White House as one of the top economic advisors in the Obama White House. And then uh, uh, he left, and during the Trump administration, he went to work for New York uh, Attorney General uh, Eric Schneiderman. Schneiderman was the AG who got me too'd and chased out of office. Uh, Matt was a one of the jobs he had there was he was the <laughs> executive deputy attorney general for social justice. So this this DEI equity nonsense, and he served as the. Uh, but but Schneider, Schneider Schneiderman was also one of the early guys to target Trump. Letitia yep. James ran on the platform of "I'm going to take down Trump," that I'm going to get Trump. That was her that was her campaign promise. But it was Schneiderman early on that laid that, that they they were already deep into this about about uh, getting Donald Trump. 
Uh, and he yeah. was so he was the head of social justice. What does social justice in the New York AG's office do, sir? Uh, apparently, they investigate Trump because that's what he did just about the entire time that Colangelo was working in the New York AG's office. He also served with with Alvin Bragg. Bragg was the the chief deputy attorney general for the criminal side, working with Colangelo. And Colangelo Colangelo brought dozens of lawsuits against the Trump administration and led the investigations into the Trump Foundation and Trump finances. And then Matt Colangelo goes to work in the Biden Justice Department. He was on the parachute team in the Justice Department. He was the acting number three, the associate, acting associate attorney general. It's a really, really important job that most people never hear about. He essentially ran the entire civil side of the Justice Department, including the Civil Rights Division, before uh, Vanita, as Vanita Gupta, who is a radical left-wing activist, was getting nominated and confirmed and going through the process. And then he became Vanita's number two. So he was the number two to the number three in the Justice Department. This is the same job that my old boss, Bill Gorsuch, had when he worked in the Justice Department. How about that for an extended get Trump effort? These are the people who have systematically destroyed the justice system in the United States. And let's take a look at the judge, Juan Mershon. This is from NPR on Sunday. What to know about Juan Mershon, the judge overseeing Trump's criminal case. The judge handling the unusual and historic case is Juan Manuel Mershon, a veteran of the New York court system who has spent more than 15 years on the bench and is no stranger to high profile prosecutions, particularly those involving Trump and his associates. Jumping down. Last year, Mershon oversaw the closely watched criminal tax fraud case against Trump's company, which was ultimately found guilty by a Manhattan jury. Trump himself was not a defendant in that case. Two business entities controlled by Trump were found guilty of 17 counts of tax fraud and falsifying business records and were ordered to pay the maximum penalty of $1.61 million. During the proceedings, Mershon shut down the suggestion from the Trump organization's legal team, that the case was politically motivated prosecution against the former president and told attorneys to focus on the specific charges. CBS News reported, I will not allow you in any way to bring up a selective prosecution claim or claim this is some sort of novel prosecution, Mershon said. Well, what about this case where everyone admits that it is a novel prosecution and there are charges of it being a selective prosecution. Former Trump Organization Chief Financial Officer Alan Weisselberg pleaded guilty in the case and served as a star witness for the prosecution. Mershon sentenced him to five months in prison, and the judge said he would have handed down a harsher sentence if he hadn't already agreed to the plea deal, Politico reported. Mershon is also overseeing a criminal case against former Trump aide Steve Bannon who's facing fraud and money laundering charges related to a former charity that promised to help build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. Bannon has pleaded not guilty. Mershon is a veteran of the New York legal system. According to the New York Law Journal, Mershon has been an acting justice of the New York Supreme Court since 2009. He's a serious jurist, smart and even-tempered. Manhattan defense attorney Ron Kuby told NBC News. He's not one of those judges who yells at lawyers and is characterized as a no-nonsense judge, but he's always in control of the courtroom. Karen Friedman Agnafilo, 
a lawyer who previously worked in the Manhattan District Attorney's office supervising cases Mershon oversaw, told CNN that Trump likely wouldn't help his case by publicly criticizing the judge. Mershon, quote, doesn't let the prosecutors or the defendants create any issues in his courtroom. He doesn't let a media circus or any other kind of circus happen. I don't think Donald Trump attacking him and threatening him is going to bode very well for him in the courtroom, Agnafilo said. And so everybody involved with the get Trump efforts thinks this judge is just the best, totally objective, happens to have a daughter who worked for Kamala Harris and Adam Schiff, but still very, very objective. And naturally, after so many of these very objective analysts suggest Donald Trump would really be hurting himself by going after this judge, Donald Trump posts this on Truth Social this morning. Very unfair venue with some areas that voted 1% Republican. This case should be moved to nearby Staten Island. Would be a very fair and secure location for the trial. Additionally, the highly partisan judge and his family are well-known Trump haters. He was an unfair disaster on a previous Trump-related case, wouldn't recuse, gave horrible jury instructions, and impossible to deal with during the witch hunt trial. His daughter worked for Kamala, and now the Biden-Harris campaign. Kangaroo Court. And so what we're seeing is a deck that is fully stacked against Trump. The get Trump effort is operating at full capacity. There is not even a hint of objectivity, which is why the mainstream media is working overtime to portray a sense of objectivity in these proceedings while admitting that this could be a very, very bad idea because it's a novel legal theory and the chances of a conviction are low. It's also why the DA's office has taken down the page of their website with the team members so that people will stop looking into them. And on one hand, you might be thinking, well, all of that sounds really bad for Trump. Isn't there some chance at least that this is going to go really bad for Trump, that they're going to convict him and then Trump is going to be in jail and the whole country is going to fall apart? Well, no, that's not going to happen. There is no reason to believe that they are actually going to get Trump. They've been going after him for almost eight years now, and every single effort has not only failed, but it has blown up in their faces and eroded trust in the media, eroded trust in the Democrats, eroded trust in the judicial system. And time after time, Trump ends up coming out ahead. Trump continues to emerge from all of these events stronger in the eyes of the public. And it doesn't matter at this point what people think about it, because what people think while these things are happening and in the headlines every day has virtually nothing to do with what they're going to think about it six months from now as people continue to awaken to what's actually happening. CNN made headlines with a poll yesterday suggesting that 60 percent of the country approves of this Trump indictment, but these CNN SSRS polls are never even close to correct. And the actual polling data does not even support the headlines, which were widely shared yesterday. In that same poll, only 37% said that Trump acted illegally. And again, it's clear that this poll is strongly weighted toward Democrats and independents. The CNN SSRS 
collaboration on these polls was started a couple of years ago. I covered it on the podcast. They have all of these novel ways of doing polls because they didn't think that the polling methods they were using were working out just right. 76% of the people in this same poll believe politics played at least some role in the decision to indict Trump. That's not good. About three in 10 say the decision strengthens U.S. democracy. But the point is that public perception in the short term is virtually meaningless. You could have run a poll like this back when the Russia investigation was going on and found the same percentage of the country supporting the Russia investigation, believing that Trump colluded with Russia, all of that. Pick any of these past issues, the impeachments, various trials, people who dislike Trump want to see Trump punished legally because that will justify their hatred of Trump. But they're missing the big picture, which is this. They've entirely set the field to have all of this turned around against them in the future. Paul Sperry writes this up in the New York Post. This is from last night. Alvin Bragg's indictment of Donald Trump might open up Pandora's box for Democrats. Democrats are jumping for joy at the prospect of Donald Trump finally getting hooked like Al Capone on some kind of any kind of criminal charge. But their own political idols, namely the Clintons or Bidens, could one day be gored by a hyperpartisan district attorney in search of a crime, no matter how picky Yoon. Democratic Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg's case against Trump is so convoluted that even the Washington Post thinks it's a stretch and one that sets an ominous precedent. It threatens to open a Pandora's box of political indictments against former presidents and other elected officials, as well as their family members by local prosecutors seeking to settle political scores. What could DAs go after top Democrats for? Where to start? There's no shortage of scandals. Let's take the Clinton Foundation, described by whistleblowers as the largest unprosecuted fraud ever. Bill and Hillary Clinton registered it as a tax-exempt charity, but have used it as their own personal piggy bank. The foundation keeps offices in Little Rock, Arkansas, where new Pulaski County DA Will Jones is a Republican who last year beat a George Soros-backed Democrat for the job. He might be able to get creative with a tax fraud case against the Clintons, who have potentially stiffed local coffers of millions in corporate income and other taxes. Over the objections of local anti-tax advocates, the Clintons allegedly pressured Little Rock officials to float close to $20 million in bonds to buy land and construct the building housing the supposedly nonprofit foundation along with the Clinton Presidential Library. What's more, whistleblowers have accused Clinton Foundation officials, including the former president, of using tax-exempt donations for personal use, including private travel, which they have denied. Co-mingling such funds is illegal. Other red states that could manufacture indictments against Democrats include Florida and Tennessee, where President Biden's brother, Jimmy Biden, has gotten into hot water for allegedly defrauding healthcare companies, which he has denied. Jimmy allegedly conned the founder of Fort Lauderdale-based AmeriCorps Health into thinking he could be a rainmaker based on his big name and snagged a corner office at the headquarters where he displayed framed photos of himself with then Vice President Joe Biden and President Barack Obama. 
But instead of bringing in business, Biden allegedly shook down AmeriCorps for personal loans he used for repairs on a family vacation home in South Florida, among other things, according to court papers. Biden allegedly promised his partners at AmeriCorps he could get them a big influx of capital from his and Hunter Biden's Chinese connections, but he used that cash instead to go on a spending spree. His shenanigans left AmeriCorps facilities in such financial disarray that at least one of its hospitals located in Elwood City, Pennsylvania, had to stop paying workers in 2018, prompting local authorities to open a criminal investigation of its finances the next year. If he were so inclined, the local Lawrence County PA district attorney could follow in Bragg's footsteps and open a grand jury probe of Biden. A pair of medical clinics in Tennessee and Alabama have also accused Jimmy Biden of fraud, which he has denied. To be sure, nobody is insisting on ginning up charges against prominent Democrats, as Bragg has done against former President Trump, the GOP frontrunner for election to the White House. The point is that what Bragg is doing now could happen anywhere. You can be sure there are prosecutors across Florida and Texas right now who are looking for a state law hook into the Biden family warns Tom Fitton, president of watchdog group Judicial Watch. And the moment such an indictment is unsealed, Democrats and their media propagandists will lose their minds. But never forget, they started it. They are the ones who weaponized grand juries against political foes and sent us all down the slippery slope to a banana republic. In the past, local authorities thought twice about bringing novel indictments against national politicians. Bragg and his Democratic co-conspirators removed that taboo. It is now open season. Bragg has been gunning for Trump from the get go. In 2021, he even campaigned on targeting Trump before recently locking her account. Wife Jamila Pontin Bragg even bragged on Twitter that her husband was going to nail Trump on some unspecified felonies. Why? Because she felt Trump was racist. Once he got into office, Bragg ignored statutes of limitations and resurrected a seven-year-old misdemeanor case against Trump that other prosecutors had shunned. Then he trod on shaky grounds of jurisdictional authority to turn it into a felony based on federal campaign finance laws. In short, he cooked up a crime, but his legal alchemy is sure to backfire on Democrats in the future with prosecutorial retaliation after retaliation. And this really is where we are now. DAs can bring cases against former presidents, against presidential candidates. And once you can do that, you can pretty much go after any politician, can't you? And the truth is the law always allowed it. People just didn't do it because they didn't want to be seen as partisan political actors influencing national politics. All that is gone now. Not that we won't hear it if and when all of this turns around and threatens prominent members of the regime. And you have to appreciate the irony of people who specifically and intentionally and systematically manipulate and meddle in elections. Election interference is rampant throughout our country on countless levels by these same members of the regime who screamed and cried in the lead up to the Ukraine impeachment hoax that Donald Trump was meddling in a national election, trying to harm a potential political opponent by investigating Joe Biden and his family's corrupt business dealings in Ukraine. They claimed all of that was out of bounds. They've been going after Trump for nothing for years now. So when this does turn around and 
We are seeing DAs and other prosecutors pursuing prominent members of the regime for actual corruption and actual crimes. The public will be able to see all of this for exactly what it is. Now, if we were in a media environment, the one we were in, say, 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago, all of this might have a different effect. The media might actually be able to convince people that all of this was real. They might be able to harm Trump's public image enough so that Trump would not be a viable candidate for president next year. But that's not the media environment we exist in now. And that's true in large part due to the efforts of Donald Trump to expose not only his political opponents and all these corrupt actors of the regime, but the media itself. People have tuned out the mainstream media, which is ultimately what is going to make it impossible for any of this to actually work. And again, we've seen that through the last nearly eight years of this get Trump effort. It always fails. Trump always comes out ahead. There is no reason to worry about any of this. Whatever happens, we play the hand we are dealt and we will still win with that hand because the truth is on our side and the people are on our side. Focus on which precedents are being set here. Now, an interesting precedent that may be set, and it's still unclear whether or not it will be, is if the judge imposes a gag order. He may not do it today, but might in the future. Alan Dershowitz on War Room this morning said that he would be first on the list of the pro bono team of lawyers to argue that case on behalf of Trump if a gag order is imposed, because that would be rather shocking, trying to make sure that Trump, the defendant, and a person running for president cannot talk about this blatant abuse of American justice. Now, as opposed in principle, as I am to a gag order, I think we can actually apply the same thinking to that issue. If a gag order is imposed, Trump will almost certainly appeal that and break it. And we'll get that argument. We will see whether or not judges are allowed to impose gag orders on defendants. Dershowitz says he'll argue it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And if that happens, I imagine we will hear that. No, that cannot be done. And it should not be done. It's not right to stack the deck against defendants on behalf of the government who is supposed to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. Whichever way it goes, you can imagine it is going to come back around and be far worse for the regime than it is for Donald Trump. And here's another issue on which we might see a future precedent set right now that will swing back and affect things later. This is from CNN Today. Federal appeals court denies Trump's emergency bid to stop ex-aides from testifying in January 6th probe. Former President Donald Trump's legal team has lost a bid for emergency help from the federal appeals court in Washington, D.C. to block some of his closest advisors from testifying about him to a grand jury, including former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, according to a new court filing. Trump's team on Monday night asked for the appeals court to wipe away a lower court's ruling that would force several of his top advisors to answer questions to a grand jury investigating Trump and his allies attempts to overturn the 2020 presidential election, despite his claims of legal protections around his presidency that would shield some of their testimony. 
The appeals court denied his request on Tuesday, dealing Trump another legal setback just before he is set to enter a courtroom in Manhattan to face criminal charges in a separate investigation. The swift decision means advisors to Trump, including Meadows, could be brought into the federal grand jury in Washington by prosecutors in the coming days. Trump would need a court to intervene in his favor in order to block their subpoenas. An appeal on the larger legal questions around executive privilege assertions could still live on before the appeals court, but the activity around Trump's emergency request for a stay would determine now if witnesses must comply with Justice Department subpoenas and the lower court's decision against Trump. Trump's team is unlikely to ask the Supreme Court for help, one source told CNN. A spokesperson for Trump did not respond to a request for comment, and the article goes on. But again, consider how this might come back in the future with other prosecutions. Can people around Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton or Joe Biden or George W. Bush use these justifications in order to avoid subpoenas and be forced to testify about issues surrounding these former presidents and prominent regime figures? That's what precedent is being set here. And I mentioned this last week, you got to get all the lines painted on the field, allow the other team to paint them. We know that Trump has done nothing wrong and that all of these issues are utterly absurd. So you all go ahead, draw the lines on the field. We will come and play and we will still win. Let's just make sure all the rules are out there and they're right on the table. And that is what's happening through this process. Precedent is being set for future prosecutions that will not have anything to do with Donald Trump. And speaking of future prosecutions that have nothing to do with Donald Trump, this is from Just the News today. Florida grand jury accuses Biden administration of abetting forced migration and sale of foreign kids. A Florida grand jury's five-month probe into the government's processing of unaccompanied migrant children is poking a major hole into President Joe Biden's border narrative, concluding his administration has been, quote, facilitating the forced migration, sale and abuse of foreign children. In an interim report released by Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody, the grand jury raised deep concerns about the Homeland Security Department and Department of Health and Human Services Office of Refugee Resettlement implementation of the unaccompanied alien child program, saying the government's rhetoric does not match its performance. Like many of our fellow Floridians, we had no pre-existing knowledge about how UAC are processed, how their sponsors are selected, how they arrive in Florida, and how they are cared for upon arrival, the jurors wrote in a report released last week. The public is led to believe that the process described by our federal government in documents and popular media accounts at least resembled the truth. ORR asserts that children fleeing from danger are adequately identified, properly cared for, and reunited with their family here in this country. In reality, ORR is facilitating the forced migration, sale, and abuse of foreign children, and some of our fellow Florida residents are, in some cases unwittingly, funding and incentivizing it for primarily economic reasons. They attach the full report in the article by Just the News. By the way, 
The grand jurors said they were shaken by the stories, photos and videos of migrant children and what they endured during their journey to the U.S. southern border in the hands of drug cartel traffickers and other bad actors. Federal agencies encourage unaccompanied minors to undertake and or be subjected to a harrowing trek to our border ultimately abandoning significant numbers of those who survive the journey to an uncertain fate with persons who are largely unvetted, the jurors warned. The process exposes children to horrifying health conditions, constant criminal threats, labor and sex trafficking, robbery, rape, and other experiences not done justice by mere words, they added. We will never be able to forget or unsee some of the heart-wrenching testimony, disturbing videos, wrenching testimony, for example, regarding brutal and horrific murders committed against civilian tourists, law enforcement officers, and even sponsors of immigrants by those who had no legal right to be in the country in the first place. The report comes more than 18 months after a 24-year-old Honduran immigrant posed as a minor child and was charged with stabbing to death a Florida man whose family had taken him in. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis subsequently signed into law a ban prohibiting state and local government entities from contracting with entities that knowingly traffic illegal aliens into the state. The grand jury suggested, however, that Florida has in some cases been unable to enforce the law because federal agencies are keeping state officials in the dark. Florida receives no information on backgrounds, criminal history, or immigration status of the UAC brought here, nor does the state have any assurance the UAC are in fact minors. And again, these are unaccompanied alien children. DeSantis asked last June for the grand jury to be impaneled to conduct an informational review of the trafficking of minor migrants. The jurors chronicled the meteoric increase in the number of unaccompanied minors arriving in the U.S. since Biden took office and declared that it had imposed a, quote, significant cost to our state due to the unlawful presence of such individuals and the resources which must be diverted to deal with them. The ORR program had approximately 3,700 children in its care at the end of calendar year 2020, the report noted. By the end of March 31st, 2021, that number had tripled to approximately 10,500. By April and May 2021, it had nearly doubled again to over 20,000. Since March 2021, HHS has consistently had, on average, 11,000 children in its care each month it added, putting that number into historical perspective. For fiscal year 2015, a total of 27,340 UAC were released into the custody of sponsors in this country. In fiscal year 2022, that number was 127,447, nearly a five-fold increase, and 13,195 of them were released in Florida. The grand jury made several recommendations to the Florida legislature, including requiring all social service agencies and shelters to report migrants in their care, as well as enhanced criminal penalties for those who traffic or abuse migrant children. Now, this, of course, is not the same as a criminal prosecution of prominent members of the regime. But the point is that there is so much political corruption and criminality involving these prominent members of the regime, that issues like this, which are more on the political side, these require political solutions, at least for now, until we potentially find criminal involvement at some level, are going to keep bubbling up. 
and the public will continue to understand there is something deeply wrong going on with the fake administration. When average Americans learn the truth about all of what's being done to this country, being done in their name, they are going to want to see people held accountable. And when we reach that stage, it's going to be a good thing that the lines have been drawn on the field. Trump knows what he's doing here, which is why he's playing along with it and why he is consistently making this the national headline every day. He wants everyone to know what's happening so that when it turns around and begins happening in the other direction, the cries from the media and from Democrats are going to fall on deaf ears. They've broken the seal. They have crossed the Rubicon. They have sown the wind and now they will reap the whirlwind. Dan Scavino said today, the guardrails are off a turning point in the United States of America. There is no going back. And if you think it's crazy that I'm not worried, look at all of Trump's camp. Do they seem worried? Does Donald Trump seem worried? Nope. Same guy, same tone as always. Never interrupt the enemy while they're in the process of destroying themselves. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 
If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!